So far in our journey, you've met some very strange characters, some weird people groups, and you've heard rules after rules after rules after rules, right? And, and you've heard lineages with names you couldn't pronounce or it just got too tedious to pronounce. And, and you've learned that God has given the people instruction on everything from athlete's foot to national repentance, right? It's all covered. Did you see the one in there about what to do if your house has mold in it? I mean, seriously, what is up with all these rules? Well, then there's that whole part about how to worship and all the different sacrifices and all the various feasts and festivals and why, you say. Well, the first thing to keep in mind is, is that God would not have prescribed these things if it wasn't needed, right? I mean, they needed to know these things or God would not, in God's perfect wisdom, have transmitted that information through Moses to the people. And so it leaves you wondering about a couple of things. Okay, what was their life like in Egypt anyway? Had they been raised for generations under their oppressors as, as livestock? Is that how they were treated? As they were cared for in every conceivable way and not allowed to obtain knowledge about life and the real world? I, I don't know. Uh, another possibility is, is that the culture of the Egyptians was so utterly alien and foreign that God needed to establish an entirely new paradigm through the people that he had chosen, the people of Israel. I think that's probably more like it, but maybe it's a combination of the two. But for whatever reason, God is determined that they would know every little thing about how to live in the promised land. And perhaps one of the reasons these prescriptions come early in the journey through the wilderness is because it will be part of the way that God sorts the people out and whittles them down to ones who are actually suited for the promised land. Amid all of those rules and regulations and feasts and worship activities and amid all of those lineages and everything, there are some simple phrases that sum it up. Here are a couple. The Lord says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, Canaan, to which you are going. You shall not walk in their statutes. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So what is God's purpose in all of these statutes, and all of these feasts and festivals, and all of these clear bloodlines? What is it that God is establishing? A new creation, a new people. And this is where we get the word sanctification or holiness, because those words mean set apart. And so what God is doing is he's sanctifying them by establishing an entirely new paradigm, one that didn't exist previously, or they might have known some of these things. 
Now, after God gives all this detailed guidance for their life and their worship and their marriages and their family relationships and their legal systems and their medical care and, and, and their governance and, and all of this, after all of that, God says, when they get done worshiping, make sure the priests say this, Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you hear what God is doing there? He's laid out all of this stuff. But then his final word on the topic, so to speak, is, is when it's over, when they're done performing all of these tasks and doing all of these duties, end it with this blessing. This blessing that reminds them that I have blessed them. This reminder that they are blessed because God wants it to be so. That it's God's initiative. He is the one who blesses because he desires to bless. He chose those people to be set apart for this unique paradigm and this unique existence that would occur in the promised land. And then it was entirely so that God could bless them. And this is the reminder. And so it turns out that living out the disciplines that have been put before the people will bless them. Go figure. But God also says this. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Wow. And so what you've been reading up to this point is a story of how God has laid down all the details for this new paradigm, this new culture that's going to possess the promised land where God has driven out all of the evil that's before them and they are going to possess the promised land. They're going to live in what would be called a theocracy. In other words, God's the boss and God communicates leadership through appointed persons like Moses and Joshua. And while they're there, they're going to live under these rules and they're going to be blessed. However, until then, God's going to be sorting them out. And so you read stories about people who made a golden calf and claimed that it led them out of Egypt, which rightly ticked God off a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. What an understatement. And then there's that wonderful story about Korah and Dathan and the people who said, oh, no, we're not headed to the, milk and, the land of milk and honey. We left it behind. <laughs> Do you remember how God reacted to that? Well, let's just say if you haven't read it yet, it's earth shattering. <laughs> it's only funny if you've read it. Have you read it? I don't hear enough laughter. Make sure you read up on Korah and Dathan because the earth swallows them up. In fact, they go to Sheol alive, which is a fate that was reserved pretty much for demons. <laughs> you got to read this stuff. It's entertaining and it's informative. And it also 
proves that God is the same yesterday, today, and always because what God just said is absolutely true. For the sake of the ones who uphold the covenant, he will punish those who reject and resent him. That his jealousy in this case is a description of his passionate love for the people that he has set apart. And for their sake, he'll punish the ones who don't return the love in the way that those who have done so presented it. And so it turns out that discipline includes justice and justice is always faithful to those who abide by the rules. Put it another way, sometimes you have to punish one person in the room for violating the rules for the sake of the ones who obeyed the rules. And this is the only way that you can establish that you are just and worthy of leadership. It always comes down to leadership, really. The Bible is explicit about this. When the people are ruled by just and godly leaders who themselves practice what God has ordained, they will in turn provide leadership that leads the majority of the people to the places that they desire to go in their hearts while others will fall by the wayside and sometimes suffer punishment they don't even realize is a logical outcome. For example, this passage that often gets questioned. Are you saying that if dad screws up, that God is gonna punish the children, the grandchildren and the great grandchildren? Is that what God is saying? Because that really stinks. I get it. It does seem like that. I was one of the first... One of the first Bible studies where I personally read the scripture and dove in deep when I was probably about 16 years old and I studied this because I wanted to know the truth. What did this really mean? And, and what I've come to learn over the years is just like when God talks about what to do about fungus in your house, which is not so much a divine precept as much as it is a practical thing. Just like God saying, don't eat roadkill because it'll probably poison you, right? It's, it seems like a, a weird statute of worship or something and some list of crazy rules to follow, but it turns out it's just a good idea not to eat things that have been out in the sun rotting. I mean, we know all of this stuff to the point where we take it for granted, and so we don't understand why they didn't. Well, here's something I know that I don't take for granted, and that is, is that when a parent messes up, it will be visited upon the next generation and probably the next generation or two after. Not as a curse, but as a logical outcome. If you have, for example, been a person whose parent was, was uh, someone you're not particularly proud of and you're particularly uh, troubled by, by the paradigm that you were given as you grew up and came of age, you said, I'm going to do this better, but you've always carried the burden of having only that example to go by and having to find a way to experience something new and create something new that you haven't seen before. It's like going from Egypt to the wilderness to the promised land. It takes time. They're all headed for a promise that they haven't been able to imagine. 
And so in the same way, the sins of the father and mother will turn out to be a a problem for the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, depending on the response of those following generations. And let's face it, most of society is built around norms that are common among small people groups like the residents of a community like this and the residents of a family of households like yours. And so when you're trying to find something new and different, you have to be willing to accept an entirely new paradigm. And there we go, back to the context around that phrase that sounds like a curse, but it's really just a statement of sociological fact. When you're moving toward a new paradigm, one that hasn't been imagined yet, you have to expect to carry a certain amount of baggage with you through the generations. But one day, one day, there will be new fruit. I always think about the, uh, the uh, art of, of uh, grafting that is used by plant growers and uh, those people who do hybrids and special uh, trees and, and, and uh, vegetables and, and flowers and things, they'll, they'll cut a graft and carefully move it onto a new thing. And so there's a scar and there's this permanent reminder in that new branch or that old branch that's been grafted to a new tree and that there's always that branch, you know, that is old carrying uh, through a scar a new system. And out of that branch becomes an entirely new thing. And so this is what I believe that passage is telling us. I can tell you that moving through that generational dilemma that is described there requires discipline, consistent effort on the part of those who would say, not my generation. This is where it stops and it goes no further, that requires discipline. That requires self-awareness, and it requires courage. No wonder then Caleb and Joshua are the only ones who are ready and right to carry on into the promised land because they were the only one among, uh, the only two guys among the 12 spies who said, "Eh, no problem, we can do this. We can move into a new paradigm that is yet to be known and understood. They had the courage and so the strength of their conviction and their faith and their discipline made them worthy of the promised land. And so they will, as you read ahead, lead the people into the land of the promise. And there's that Joshua. Oh, I love Joshua. What a heroic leader he is. This is my favorite passage spoken by Joshua as they get ready to move into the promised land. It's my favorite passage from the Old Testament. Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That Joshua man. What a powerful leader. I can't wait for you to get to know him as you read forward. His faith is incredible. He meets Christ. Spoiler alert. You got to read it. Think it through for yourself. But it's a captain. And there's only one captain up there. Then we're going to meet the judges. 
probably not the kind of leaders that Joshua would have picked, but they were the right people for the next round of God's leadership in a people who failed to hold their up end of the bargain. They did not uphold the covenant. And the telling fact is that they never honored the year of Jubilee. You'll want to remember this as you read forward in scripture because it's a vital part of understanding the big picture, which is why you engaged in the B90 in the first place, because you wanted to see the big picture. This is a major big picture element in the Old Testament, and it transfers over into the New Testament. They did not keep the covenant of Jubilee. And you will see how that plays out as you read on. For now, I thought it'd be fitting for us to meet one of the judges. You'll encounter him later in the coming week if your schedule's anywhere close to mine. But I will say, as I put that out there, if you're just starting, that's okay. <laughs> I want everybody to do this, and I don't care if you start today, just do it, okay? The information won't go away. It's evergreen. It'll be there. The lessons, the learning, the notes on Facebook, all of that's there and it won't go away. You'll be able to visit it, whatever your place in the journey. Let's meet Gideon. I'm going to read from Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 11. You heard a little bit of it from Roger. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite. I probably didn't pronounce that right, and it's okay. I might have said, while he, his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And as Roger pointed out, and I will put it my own particular way. It was been that moment when you think somebody else is in the room because he says, the Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. And Gideon goes, me? You talking to me? And Gideon says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned, the Lord turned to him and said, and see, it says the Lord turned to him. So it's an angel, but it's not. And the Lord turned to him and said, he said, Dan lost his place. God, in his might of yours, in this might of yours, mm -mm, not only did I lose my place, but I didn't even read the right words. This is so important. The angel said, go in his might of yours, in this might of yours, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? I screwed that up so bad, I'm going to paraphrase it so that we don't miss the important point, all right? He, he says, I don't get it. You, you, you greet me like that, and, and I'm thinking, where's the Lord anyway? He didn't show up in the first place, because otherwise we wouldn't have all these problems. And, and the, the Lord doesn't miss a beat. He's staying on target here. He's not going to reply to what the complaints of Gideon. He says, 
If I tell you you can take the Midians, you can take the Midians. You see what, what's going on there? The Midianites, he's, he's saying, I don't want to hear your complaints. I just want you to hear that it's about to get reconciled and you can do it because I am with you. And this is where Gideon says the thing that I often think about. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, just so you remember from your reading, Manasseh is a half-tribe. They're born from Joseph, who was the son of Israel, but his wife was an Egyptian. They chose to live outside the promised land, but they did their part to help conquer the promised land. So not only is Gideon saying that I'm the least among my people and my people the least in our tribe, but the truth is the tribe's not even the most powerful tribe in Israel. So you could say that the common denominator here is, is that in Gideon's mind, they're losers. They, he doesn't see how God could possibly resolve their problems through the likes of him. And that's precisely the point. Because God delights in making amazing things happen in the most unlikely ways through the most unlikely means. There will be no question that the victory that is ultimately won is God's victory. And Gideon, who apparently has a heart after God, is the guy, not because of his outward prowess, but because his heart is turned to God. And as you read in the Bible in the coming weeks, you're going to meet multiple characters who are really characters. And they're they're the most unlikely heroes you could ever imagine, but they all have one thing in common. They desire the heart and mind of God. They are men and women after God's own heart, and they hunger for the Lord. And so it isn't how beautifully they live out their faith or how, how smoothly they conduct their business as believers, but it's about how consistently they turn toward the promise. They never give up on the promise. They keep moving toward God. They don't want to let go of this covenant, intimate relationship with God. And this is what separates them from the crowd. It's their heart. Well, I don't know about you, but that's good news to me because it means that no matter what a sloppy job I do of living out my faith and leading others in accordance with my calling, the fact is, is it's still good enough. Because the victory is the Lord's. I'm ecstatic right now. I just listened to the praise team take you right up to the feet of God at his throne. And I was sitting there thinking, how in the world did I get so blessed as to be called to shepherd a place like this? To work with people like that? How in the world did I get so blessed? I ask myself that all the time. When I walk down the halls and I see all of you talking about the Bible that you're all reading together, and I know that you're doing it in your homes as well, and people are asking me if they can start a new group, and I keep ordering more books for the participants, and I can't seem to keep them in stock, and I'm just, I'm pinching myself. and thinking, Lord, how? 
How could you use the likes of me to let something like that happen? And the answer is because my heart is for God. And if I could just stay out of his way and just do what he tells me to do, there's no telling what could happen. Can I get an amen? You were led into this time of speaking by a song that said, just be available. Just make some room in your heart. And then obey him and follow him to the best of your ability. Don't worry about how pretty it is and don't compare it to anybody else. Just be you. And give you to the Lord. And every day, don't concentrate on the failures because there's enough of those in your daily life. Look for the victories. The Lord is winning in your midst because of your open heart. Let us pray. Lord, hear your people making themselves available like Gideon, wondering why in the world you would pick someone like that and yet opening themselves anyway. Keep us focused on the promised land, Lord, and Lord bless everyone who's reading their Bible in 90 days or so and bless everyone who decides to begin and help them to persevere. I pray especially that you bless the small group leaders and yours truly, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.